When I saw the footage come back uh, after we directed the interviews, uh, we were stunned by the cinematic brilliance of it that we knew that we had to take at least eight months to really take the time, put together this documentary and not just do a couple episodes of it. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. And this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. This is episode number 12. Uh, I'm your host, Nora Barrows-Friedman, with my co-host, Asa Wynn-Stanley. Asa, how are you doing right now? It's uh, in the thrust of the UK elections. Any, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Nora. It's um, a crazy time, really, the elections. Um, they are really reviving the Labour anti-Semitism smear yeah. quite substantially. Uh, and it, it's uh, there's only a few weeks left to go, and I I mean I have so many stories. I mean our readers will know that one of the main beats I've had for the last four years really is this issue and how fabricated and exaggerated claims of anti-Semitism have really played the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, and in the course of that, I've. <sighs> It's just, I mean, I've only been able to tell half the story, really. There's so many leads that I haven't been able to really follow up on or haven't had time to get around to, you know. And it's really frustrating to me to think that this issue is being used to really attack the Labour Party and could really cost the Labour Party this election, you know, mm. potentially. Uh, and it's, it's been such a coordinated and sustained smear campaign. You'd think that you know they would get tired of trotting out these old smears, but but they they don't. They just keep doing it. They don't because unfortunately the Labour leadership has really given way to it, you know, and they yeah. they kind of sent blood in that way. And they once they go on the attack and draw proverbial blood, then they're going to keep on doing it when mm -hmm. they see there's a retreat. And it just leaves Labour Party open up to this issue being brought out time and time again. And it just the Labour Party's got quite good policies in its manifesto. You know, it's there's some moderately sensible stuff there um, about you know stuff that's really common sense, really keeping the Labour keeping the NHS in public ownership, um, renationalising certain basic companies and so forth. But this election especially has been hard for Labour because every time they bring out one of these policies, it seems there's a new revival of this smear campaign. Um, and it, it just, it's it, it's made it really difficult mm. to, to break. And I think it has, I mean, people, people have sometimes, Labour activists have kind of said, oh, well, we should just ignore these smears and we should just sort of carry on with what we're doing and... You know, people don't actually believe it or don't actually care. But there is some polling to indicate that as many as 40% of the British public think that either that Jeremy Corbyn's an anti-Semite or that, you know, has the party has some sort of um, issue there with anti-Semitism. And I think it is beginning to break through to the mainstream because in terms of people believing it, because it feeds into a wider narrative about mm -hmm. Corbyn being a so-called extremist and so forth. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see what happens. I mean, it just um, reminds me of like the the targeted attacks that are still going on against um, 
Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, um, yeah. and you know any any person publicly, a politician or you know leader of any movement who dares to speak up for Palestinian rights, they're automatically labeled an anti-Semite, and the evidence is the accusation. Um, yeah. And that's all they really yes, need. Yes, exactly. And that's, and that's um, it's frightening. Yeah, it's a really disgusting line. You know, it, it, it's this really self-fulfilling logic that um, they just start off on the premise that the left is anti-Semitic uh, and that the the uh, accusation, it's, uh, the accusation itself is evidence. Right. Uh, and if you deny this so-called evidence, then you too are an anti-Semite. So it's uh, we've seen this on both sides of the Atlantic, and I think it's only going to ramp up in the U.S. Actually, in the absolutely, US. if 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 Bernie does win the nominate nomination, you know, if he does win the primaries, uh, which for all his limitations, I do hope he does. Yeah. Um. I I think that we will see Labour anti-Semitism cross the Atlantic yeah. Ocean and become Democratic Party anti-Semitism. And as you've said, it's already started, you know. Yeah. They started, they've started on, they started on Ilhan Omar and the rest of the squad and so on and so forth. I mean, you may say, you know, that um, it would be harder against Bernie Sanders because he's Jewish himself. Uh, but I, I don't think that's going to be an issue for them because the, the real issue of anti-Semitism is not, they don't actually care about that. Right. No, it's just using it. It's using it. Right. Um, anti-Semitism as a smear is not what it used to be, as uh, Jonathan Shanza said yeah. from the Foundation of Defense for Defense of Democracy. That's right. Yeah, lamenting, <laughs> lamenting know? that it wasn't. Yeah, lamenting right. it. And so it's it's really in that film, the Undercover Al Jazeera film, it's really stunning to think of that quote um, because it, it shows that in private. They do consider it a smear. Yeah. You know, they wouldn't say it in public. And it's reached a stage in the Labour Party now whereby um, if you accuse, if you say it's a smear, that in itself is, is anti-Semitic. Right. So if you say anti-Semitism is a smear, then you're an anti-Semite too. Well, you know, the Israel lobby itself says that, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty stunning, really. It's pretty, pretty staggering stuff yeah um yeah yeah oh well thank you for covering all of that as you do for the electronic intifada and other outlets um i know that you've been on some uh some television programs talking about all of this um and you've been doing some of the research tell us a little bit about um what you've been up to lately yeah i got um invited on uh, a couple of tv programs the last week or so um doesn't happen that often, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> surprising. I do kind of enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, they uh, and uh, of course these were not British TV channels. I don't think that would ever happen. Um, yeah, so Al Jazeera Arabic invited me on to speak for a translator. They have really excellent um, simultaneous translation. Yeah. Um, on Al Jazeera Arabic, when you appear as a non-Arabic speaking. Um, uh, pundit um and uh i mean i i have i do have what i like to call falafel sandwich arabic but it's certainly not good enough <laughs> to go on al jazeera arabic and discuss political issues there so they invited me on on you know on a on a sunday on a saturday afternoon and i kind of 
really didn't want to do it because I like my weekends. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did go on in the end and uh, it was quite good. Um, and um, we they asked me about um, the uh, European Court of Justice's recent ruling about um, labelling settlement produce. Right. So pro- produce um, made in illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank sold in European supermarkets has to be labelled as such. It can't be labelled made in Israel. Um, so, yeah, that was good. So I argued that it's going to be um, difficult for Israel to separate in this way and that it raises the question of a wider boycott and so forth. Um, and then I was on TRT World as well, which is kind of like, I learned, is like Turkey's Al Jazeera, Turkey's Al Jazeera English. <laughs> Um, I I was on it once years ago, um, and I was then actually talking about labor, so-called labor anti-Semitism yeah. in 2016, and they got me on head to head this sort of obnoxious moron from some, you know, from some crappy uh, liberal website that nobody reads, <laughs> um, and uh, he was just trying to say how Labour was anti-Semitic and blah, blah, blah. And this was at the, really more at the beginning of the so-called Labour anti-Semitism right. crisis. Um, and I just laid into the guy. It was weird, though, because I don't think the, the producers didn't do a very good job then because they didn't tell me it was going to be a head-to-head debate and I'd be, um, you know, be sort of, say, one person saying Labour is anti-Semitic and one person isn't. Uh, that kind of thing and uh, the guy just went for me personally so I laid into him uh, I think I did quite well but um, it, 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 uh, the clip's still up there um, and uh, but no this was different so it was much better they just got me on to talk um, as one of two pundits um, about um, the latest um, you know ridiculous declaration by the American administration about how settlements are great and wonderful and there's no um, illegality there Um, (laughs) yeah so that was good I was a I was a pundit sort of talking into a camera and uh, the other guy in Istanbul was actually Samuel Arian oh no kidding Um, yeah and um, I political prisoner yeah yeah former political prisoner you know kept for years in American dungeon so it was I would it would be nice to actually meet the guy I I I heard over the earpiece Samuel Arian and I thought oh maybe it's like one of his sons or cousins or something um but no later on I saw it was there was the was the very same Samuel Arian and so it was it was nice to um kind of talk with a get you know be one of two pundits where we were both in agreement basically <laughs> talking yeah. uh, uh, along the same sort of line so yeah it was it was good um mm. so yeah it's nice to nice to go on tv i guess yeah. um I mean, if, <laughs> every once even in a while if it, when there's an opening yeah yeah <laughs> even it, it doesn't happen for us no uh anyway anywhere near enough um so um yeah it would be good to see that more. Um, no, I just read this piece of yours about um, what happened at the Canadian University. Ah, yes. Um, and uh, the JDL, uh, the so-called Jewish Defence League, this right. um, extremist Zionist organisation, you know, known for its extreme violence uh, in the 70s and 80s, even carried out bombing campaigns in New York and Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, 
the JDL has been a kind of inter intermittent beat of mine from time to time, so I'm always a bit alarmed to see them cropping up again. So, can you tell yeah. us? Yeah, I think about we all are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's a, an actual like terrorist organization that has been banned in the U.S. Um, and is is allowed to operate out in the open in Canada um, for whatever reason. I mean, you know, Canada has uh, a lot of the same policies, obviously, towards Palestinians um, that the U.S. does. Um, and and in, in some cases, like allowing the JDL to, to you know, form and, and grow and walk onto uh, campuses and, and incite violence and actually assault threaten and um, and yell racial slurs at protesters uh, Canada hasn't hasn't you know seen anything wrong with that um, mm. so what what happened was uh, there was a, a very far-right group um, called Herut Canada which brought this you know this group of Israel sold, Israeli soldiers uh, to campus. They're they're part of a group called Reservists on Duty, and it we've covered them before. They they're very, obviously very Zionist, very right wing, very pro um, you know Israeli military. They're Israeli soldiers themselves, and they you know they come to campuses all over North America um, in in what can really just be described as like recruitment ploys. Right. Um, and which is illegal uh, for a foreign military to, you know, try and recruit um, on, you know, at least in Canada. Um, right. So they, so they, they were doing this event on campus. Um, obviously, Palestine solidarity protesters, a lot of them Palestinians, um, you know, planned a, a counter, you know, a, a protest uh, to counter their, you know, very violent narrative. Um, and they got word that the JDL Canada was going to show up, um, and JDL Canada did, and they immediately started inciting, um, you know, their, their own members to, to punch and strangle and, uh, actually knocked one of the protesters out, um, uh, one protester was hit in the back of the head, uh, allegedly by a JDL member, taken to the hospital um and you know and then we have like mayor weinstein who's the head of the jdl canada um who was actually banned from york university campus at one point earlier this year um he was there uh inciting his his minions to to threaten and intimidate uh and carry out these violent assaults against protesters Mm. Um, and he actually like filmed himself there saying that the JDL was here to, sh to you know, to basically like right. uh, put these protesters in their place. Um, yeah. And in your article about this, I saw some really blatant uh, yeah. comments that some of these JDL supporters. Had yeah, they were admitting to it. Yeah, they're admitting to it. Um, and instead of, you know, coming to the defense of the students um, who were protesting. Knocking people out with a flagpole for 10 exactly. minutes and stuff yeah. like that. Instead of, you know, not just the university administration, but politicians um, uh, coming to the, the defense of the protesters who were being assaulted by the, this violent gang of thugs, um, they instead, uh, you know, took the JDL at their word, who claimed that, that the protesters were anti-Semites. Of course, we see this smear over and over again. Um, and not just the Toronto mayor, but uh, Premier Doug Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau all tweeted 
basically in support of the JDL. Justin, I love blackface Trudeau. That's right. That's yeah, right. the guy really, really loves blackface. Like, seriously. Like, how he, he, he can't he get couldn't even remember how many times that he wore blackface. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, and the York University administration has so far not done anything. Um, yeah. You know, so, so students are asking the administration to take responsibility for allowing this terrorist organization on campus to assault protesters. Um, and, you know, it just kind of shows... It shows the true face of, you know, Canadian politicians' sentiment towards Palestinians and people who support their yeah. rights. So, uh, yeah, you can check that out. Yeah, EI. it's it, yeah. Read everyone. Read Nora's articles. Great, it's up oh, on uh, EI. It's a top story on EI. I think today, oh, Wednesday, twenty seventh of November. It's the most recent story. Um, it's um, yeah. Have a read of it. Um, the yeah, I just I found this really resonated actually with what's going on in the UK. Yeah. Really, just in terms of the political response to it, um, yeah. not in terms of the JDL exactly, because although there is a JDL UK, and I did cover it in some detail yeah. a few years ago, because there was some there was an assault they carried out an assault, quite a serious assault against um, a Palestinian literature festival of all right. things. I remember um, that. Yeah. Yeah, these two weirdos, um, you know, it literally, I mean, this so-called JGL UK is really just a few weirdos, um, thankfully. Um, uh, But, and I I think, and I think the JDL Canada is is more of a serious and organised group to say nothing of the JDL in France, which is really quite insidious. Yeah. Um, But it it reminded me that... what happened in um, this Canadian university, it, the way that the prime minister, politicians from the prime minister down, downwards responded to it really struck me as similar to what's going on here because all they, they there was no question of, or oh, let's find out the facts of what happened and then respond accordingly. It was literally, they saw the word anti-Semitism, yeah. regardless of who it comes from, the accusation comes from an extremist terrorist group in this case. Uh, but that doesn't matter. The word anti-Semitism is raised and just all critical faculties just go out the window. Yeah, There's no need for automatic. evidence. Yeah, like you said, like the, 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 the allegation itself constitutes the evidence. That's right. It's completely insane. He saw, he saw this accusation. You know, um, Adam Milstein, um, this uh, multi-millionaire uh, convicted Israeli-American felon, convicted of tax dodging, um, with deep ties to the Israeli state um, and the Israeli uh, Israel's um, semi-covert anti-BDS uh, agency, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, um, Adam Milstein tweeted. I mean, it's yeah. disgusting. You know what he what he tweeted was really disgusting. It was a pure fabrication, and he just tweeted a video. He he said that the the protesters, the the Palestinian protesters, were treat were saying anti-Semitic chance and the video yeah. didn't support that whatsoever there, were, there has been no video evidence to support that um and and you know when you if you've ever and there's gone no to evidence prot- of it on the prime minister he's that's con- right. is believing it anyway right why it's, it's insane and that's, that's what goes on on both sides of the atlantic yeah yeah i i mean just you know, the, the fact so so Adam Milstein and the Jerusalem Post and a bunch of other Zionist uh, right wing tweeters 
were were claiming that that the Palestinian protesters at York in Toronto were chanting Intifada, Intifada, go back to the ovens, right? Um, which a there's no evidence to support that that happened. You can see all of the. I mean, there's literally dozens of videos from this mm. event, and not one shows that. Um, and you know, if you've ever gone to a protest, you know that the best chants are the ones that rhyme. <laughs> or that have like a, a certain, you know, cadence or, you know, the, there's there's like a, sil- a melody of syllables, you know what I mean? That it, there's yeah. no way that that chant would have, I, it, A, because the, the Palestinian protesters there um, are not anti-Semitic. They are not yeah. calling for the, you know, destruction of the Jewish people or the Jewish religion. They were calling for the accountability of the Israeli military, which was mm. there on their campus, um, yeah. and, and that you know, there's, and there's it, a huge. It's like the thing. facts. The facts don't matter to, to these people no. because no. it's like even even in getting into this discussion that we're having now, we're having to say, well, actually, the Palestinians were not anti-Semitic, <laughs> right? And this is, this is the problem that Jeremy Corbyn has got into, right? Yeah. All he's had to say is, uh, I all he's said for the last four years, I'm not anti-Semitic, you know. Labour is not an anti-Semitic party. We condemn anti-Semitism, etc., etc., etc. All people are hearing the the normal voter is anti-Semitism. They not right. may not understand all the ins and outs of it, or even ob- understand the obsession with it. But all they're hearing is anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. Yeah. So it yeah. just carries it on. You know, it's yeah. it's just it's and and that's why they keep keep doing this because these right. spineless politicians like Justin Blackface Trudeau just instantly believe it and indulge in these fantasies and conspiracy theories it's just it's really infuriating yeah yeah to say the least um (laughs) but um well we have just a minute left before we go into this wonderful uh interview that we did recently with abby martin she's a a journalist filmmaker uh, and producer and director of uh, her latest uh, documentary which is called gaza fights for freedom um and we interviewed her right before uh, this latest round of attacks by Israel um, on Gaza. Um, And so, you know, it was, um, I think it's important to to have her on and and kind of contextualize the, you know, this this greater um, situation that that Gaza is in. But but we can talk for a few minutes about uh, what did happen in Gaza um, in early, uh, mid-November. According to our own Maureen Claire Murphy, who reported a lot about uh, what was happening in Gaza as it was happening, um, Gaza's health ministry stated on November 14th that Israeli forces killed 34 Palestinians during the fighting, which was about 48 hours of violence. Nearly half of those 34 Palestinians killed um, are civilians, uh, including eight children and three women. Um, including three members of the Ayad family, among them a seven-year-old child, uh, who were killed as they were on a motorcycle in front of their Gaza City home on Wednesday, November 13th. Um, so, Asa, you know, wh- how, how do we look at this, um, you know, this, this 48 hours of, of bombings by the Israeli military on Gaza's population? Um you know what what was what was going through your mind as as this was all happening a couple of weeks ago yeah it was fully sickening just how blatantly israel began this particular you know outbreak of violence against the palestinian population 
Um, I think that... I mean, people are always trying to read the runes and say, oh, well, it was because of this particular political development and maybe Benjamin Netanyahu was trying to distract attention from, you know, these fraud proceedings and, you know, an upcoming possibility right. of a third election and so on and so forth, trying to look like a hard man to Israeli voters and so on. People, you know, and I... I those kind of um, divinations... I, I don't like them because it, 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 we're missing the big picture, which is that two million people, mostly refugees, are being kept in the world's largest open air prison, um, yeah. just subjected to occasional bouts of extreme violence and purges, really, by the Israeli yeah. government, just for the crime of being born as a Palestinian, simply right. for not being Jewish in what they perceive to be a Jewish state, you know, that um, Gaza is really, is still fully occupied, still fully under siege. Uh, and Israel has the full responsibility for that. And and until we see the end of occupation, full equality for Palestinians and return of the refugees, um, the price of Zionism is these periodic massacres against Palestinian people. And that's the political reality. And yeah. it's going to continue yeah. As our colleague Omar Karmi wrote, um, he said, why is Israel, you know, something like, why is Israel bombing Gaza again? Because it can. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's Because there's no consequences for it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, well, we will link to all of the uh, latest news on Gaza, um, all of our latest blog posts. And, uh, of course, Abby Martin's film that we're going to be talking about right now, uh, Gaza Fights for Freedom. Uh, let's take a short musical break and we'll be right back with Abby Martin. talk about her film Gaza Fights for Freedom is our friend the journalist Abby Martin. Abby thanks so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. It's a great honor to be on. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start by talking about how the film came to be made. Uh, you were the host of the late great show Breaking the Set on RT America until 2015 and since then you're the host of the Empire Files and on both shows you've covered the effects of Western imperialism and confronted the US war machine's reign of terror across the world. But what brought you to focus on Palestine and the liberation struggle for Palestinians and specifically what's been happening in Gaza over the course of the Great March of Return which began in March of 2018? Right, well, Nora, you actually played a role in that. I remember Back when I was living in Oakland, I saw um, a lecture from you about the architecture of oppression. Uh, you know, I've always been interested in the Palestinian cause, considering that they've always been conflated with terrorists in the wake of 9-11, even were blamed in part for 9-11. You know, you see kind of ad nauseum that footage of, quote unquote, Palestinians dancing in the streets. You had right wing ideologues on TV that morning advocating the invasion of Gaza. 
Um, and Netanyahu, of course, saying now you have your own war on terror, just like we do. And you can finally experience, you know, what Israelis go through on a daily basis. So it's always been in the back of my mind. Um, but I think once I started working at uh, Russia today and working alongside multiple Palestinians who constantly had to check in with their families every time Israel would go on a bombing campaign in Gaza. So, um, you know, Operation Pillar of Cloud, I think, was the first time that I was really shocked and horrified by the fact that my colleagues were literally seeing if their family members were alive or dead uh, mm. on a daily basis and could not get in touch with their uncles and cousins that resided in Gaza. Um, of course, the um, the flotilla massacre, I think, was a time when it really shook a lot of people to the media distortion. I mean, how could you possibly uh, say that that was, you know, righteous? And I and I just I'll just never forget CNN and all these channels just showing like the propaganda side circling the people trying to hit the commandos that had just massacred nine or ten people on board, circling like the people who were holding. Um, tables and chairs trying to fend them off saying, look, they have weapons. Um, and then fast forward to again at RT when Operation Pillar of Cloud was going on and Israeli forces bombed the Al Sharok journalist tower and yeah. the leg of an RT cameraman was blown off. Um, and Avita Lubovitch, the IDF spokesperson, basically when RT prompted uh, Israel for a response of why they targeted a journalist tower when they knew the journalists were inside the building. Avita Lobovich said, of course we knew there were journalists inside the building. Um, everyone in Gaza is a Hamas target and RT has taken a side in mm -hmm. coverage of this conflict. And that was at a time when I was kind of, you know, um, really going hard every day talking about the war crimes that were being committed. So I realized then that you know, they would really stop at nothing and they would go to great lengths to, uh, you know, commit atrocities and just absolve themselves of them. But fast forward to when I was able to finally go to the West Bank with my partner, Mike Preisner, who, who is produces the show Empire Files with me and just seeing the occupation firsthand. I mean, you realize that the atomization of the West Bank, there's no hope for a two state solution. Uh, and and understanding that reality by being on the ground, understanding the reality of settler terrorism, you know, being able to visit the Dewapshif family and stuff like that. And so we wanted to get into Gaza. We had all the proper credentials, filled out, out all the right paperwork. Um, and we were told by Ron Paz, the, you know, the underling of Netanyahu with the foreign press office, that we were propagandists and, right. and denied outright, basically banned for life. And told that I was an Iranian agent, which I was, you know, I'm used to being called a Russian <laughs> agent and a Venezuelan agent. So I was like, where the hell is this coming from? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Repeat that yeah. last bit. Like they, they formally said that wow. to you in a letter that you were an yes. Iranian agent. Yes. And That's it was bizarre. quite scary. On what basis? Yeah. I think because Telesur had diplomatic relations with Iran. And so they, they kind of, you know perform some mental gymnastics to basically say I was there for an Iranian agent. I uh, see. Pretty scary. It's a pretty huge stretch. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, a year and a half later, the Great March of Return sparked off and I Skyped in with the Council of International Relations there in Gaza to kind of just discuss Western media coverage. And uh, that's when this collaboration arose out of that discussion with about 30 Gaza journalists and um, and we talked about how we should do an Empire Files series on the Great March to do the story justice, because, of course, as we know, the corporate media is just was just abhorrent yeah. um, in their coverage of it uh, and distorting everything. And the only time that they covered it was when 60 people were mowed down in cold blood. And, of course, it was done with the passive voice excused as just clashes happened. 
And when I saw the footage come back uh, after we directed the interviews, uh, we were stunned by the cinematic brilliance of it that we knew that we had to take at least eight months to really take the time, put together this documentary and not just do a couple episodes of it. So tell us about the photojournalists who shot the footage, who you worked with, um, and the challenges that they faced over, you know, these, these, you know, long months of covering these protests every Friday. Sure. Well, I'll start by saying that we actually had to redact our co-producer's name. This was our, you know, this is the person I was most in contact with every single day for eight months straight, doing all the field production, getting me all the footage, you know, really available, really impassioned and involved in the project. He had to just remove his name at the end of the day from the film because he said he did not want any reason for Israel to retaliate against him. Um, and, and he wanted to eventually wow. be able to leave Gaza. And I, and that just really struck me. Um, it just struck me at my core cause it's just something that you don't think about. And the fact that he can't get the accolades for being involved in a project like this because he's just scared. Yeah. So, um, yeah. it's, it, it's sick. Um, but Asma Tia Hamad, the female photojournalist, I was so incredibly stunned and and inspired by the fact that a female was uh you know the counterpart to Moaz Maza who's who was the one really going out there in the march every single Friday running toward the bullets you know I mean you see literally multiple times in this footage of people getting shot and he runs toward the scene it's just it's courage that's really unmatched I think by anyone else that I know in this field of work um and I think that really just speaks to how strong Palestinian journalists are. I mean, whenever there's a, a whenever there's something going on in Gaza, they're the first on the front lines to to run out there in in uh, the line of danger every single time to show the truth and to expose what's going on. But working with them was incredible. Moaz um, wishes that he could be on tour with us. He I, I talked to him just the other day and he was just like I following all the news coverage very qu- closely and you know, he just mm-hmm. he's just really excited about the project. He thinks it turns out really well. And he's really happy that we kind of did justice to his photojournalism because it's absolutely brilliant. The slow motion steady cam work that they did, the drone work, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, it's un- yeah. it's unlike really anything that I've seen um presented even in documentary form and it really puts you inside these protests that I've never really experienced before kind of akin to you know anyone who's seen like Samsara Baraka or it's really brilliant brilliant work yeah and it was an incredibly inspiring experience to work with both of them over the course of these months so the film is called Gaza Fights for Freedom and um, our listeners can watch it by renting it on Vimeo, renting it or buying it on Vimeo. Um, and it's a really wonderful film. Um, could you talk a little bit about how it worked logistically to make this film? Because um, you've talked about the challenges that the Palestinian uh, videographers had in shooting this film, you know, the threat, little threats to their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as we've just learned, the threat to the well-being of the your um, co-producer, um, whose name you know must re- re- remain redacted. Um, how did it work on a day-to-day basis making this film? With you, you weren't allowed to go in. 
Um, mm. And uh, how, how how did that work? Talk a little bit about the logistics of that. It must have been a really tough challenge. It was. And I think the toughest challenge, especially being, you know, sitting as a privileged American and with electricity and just saying, hey, can you get this footage over? And they're like, yeah, um, when we have electricity, you know, or like. Yeah, know? right. Because like we, we I mean, uh, this is something uh, that hits me right. as well a lot sometimes is. Is is that um, we read about this stuff? Oh, Gaza has only so many, you know, a few hours of electricity a day, and we have all these sort of statistics and stuff. Um, but when you, it comes down to those real practicalities like that, when you're talking to Palestinians in Gaza, um, and you say, "Oh, can you, you know, get me this?" Because you know, we work with writers mm-hmm. in Gaza, writers and photographers in Gaza as well, and 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 they always say, you know, "Oh yeah, I can do it well, as soon as I get <laughs> electricity," kind of thing. And that that was a, yeah. a, a part at the beginning of your film that really hit me as well when it, the this um i forget his name now but the uh, uh really impoverished gentleman with a, a large family who you know he, he he couldn't even feed his family properly um due to the the siege the imposition the shortages of the siege and he he was lighting his house through candlelight because of the lack of electricity during the day exactly that was a mod uh Sabo and it's and you know he he actually is taking care of two families um and yeah I mean something that he says really stuck with me where he said electricity is as important as the air we breathe and people don't really Mm. understand how important electricity is you know it seems like water of course is the main crisis which I think it is but electricity really is a, a huge huge humanitarian crisis the fact that you can't pump water on the roofs you know, of these water tanks when you don't have electricity during the day, the fact that you can't freeze uh, or you can't keep food cold, you know, you can't store meat properly. Mm. I mean, there's so many things that we just take for granted. And then, of course, when it came to the footage, yeah, I mean, and when I was sending them clicks, clips and I was just like, hey, download this and watch this. He's like, I, I again, like it's going to take us a couple of days to even download files this big. And it really did take mm. weeks over the course of weeks and weeks to actually finally get all of the footage and then following up subsequently getting more and more March footage. It was a it was a good three month process to actually finally accumulate all of the footage uh, before we were able to really uh, construct the documentary because of the limitations with electricity and Internet. Mm. Um, talk a little bit about some of the, the, the stories you focus on in, in the film, um, especially I'm, I'm thinking about, um, you know, you, you focus on the journalists who are at the front lines, as you say, you also focus on the paramedics and specifically the story of Razan al-Najjar, um, the, the, the young nurse who was murdered, um, by Israeli snipers. Can you talk a little bit about, um, her story, why it was important to focus on her, uh, especially in terms of kind of you know, confronting the media bias around, um, you know, how, how the Great March of Return um, was was being talked about um, and discussed in, in the corporate mainstream media. Right. And yeah, we focus a lot on the victims, you know, one who's a youth, uh, early 20s, who was shot in the head for holding a Palestinian flag. And we we focused on him um, because he really debunks that kind of myth that, you know, everyone's, of course, engineered by Hamas, this really dehumanizing, cynical, um, disgusting propaganda that's deployed to delegitimize and dehumanize Palestinians over and over again by the corporate media and our political establishment. And um, this young gentleman is just like, yeah, he's like, I went out there to the march 
first was shot in the leg. Then I went out again, then was shot in the other leg. And then I went out again and was shot in the head the entire time was just holding a flag, right? Chanting national slogans. And, and he said, and I'm going to go out again and I go out every week. And I think that really speaks to how, um, it's, it's, it's about, you know, another gentleman, Muhammad, whose leg is amputated now, who had, they had to cut a part of his bone every you know week that he wasn't able to travel. And of course we know that people are collectively punished. Anyone who's a part of the march, they just outright denied their medical permits and, and he's pleading that he needs help and he needs to get across. And he says at the beginning of his interview, he says, freedom is in your heart. It's something that everyone wants to feel. And, and you know, they, they explain why they're going out there risking life and limb to take part in this mass nonviolent civil disobedience action. You know, we started off with the story of Ahmad uh, Sabo because um, we wanted to kind of zero in on one family's struggles um, someone who was also shot at the march, someone who lost their farm due to Israeli bombardment, and end with the story of Razan al-Najjar after we kind of go through this broad view of statistics, which of course is very important because, you know, we're talking about directed, targeted killings of all these protected categories in the Geneva Conventions and, you know, using exploding bullets and toxic gas and all of these things are banned, of course, internationally. And then we wrapped up the story, the whole documentary with Razan and a lot of people probably would ask why, you know, Razan is one of the people who made international news. There was a lot of outcry about her death, but what is missed about that is that she was smeared relentlessly. There was yeah. no apologies or atonement on behalf yes. of the Israeli government. Certainly no um, responsibility taken for her death. Right. I mean, we know there was many admissions saying every shot was directed. You know, we know where every bullet landed. Da, 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 right. that, with that tweet yeah. um, and we know that these people are authorized by generals and you know that these shots are very deliberate these people have a wide view of the demonstrations and, and, and it's just completely bullshit to say that they their views are obfuscated and people are dying on accident but Razan's story is very unique because the New York Times interviewed her you know I think a couple of weeks before she was shot and profiled her you know as this young feminist medic um incredible humanitarian she was the first female to actually go out to the great march of return uh, and that's huge i mean she was she's changing society on the ground and and she has kind of an attitude in in her uh you know when she's interviewed she's just like i dare you to find anyone with the courage that i did that that i had when i went out there just like and when yeah. and when her colleagues are retelling her story in the last moments of her life the attitude really shines through where you know her colleague um uh, Rasha and uh, Rasha is just like, yeah, she wanted to take photos of all of us. And I was saying, don't take photos. And she's like, I'm going to take photos whether you like it or not. <laughs> like that kind of just like, I don't care what you say. Um, but but what was incredible is that after, you know, the reason that we wanted to give true homage to her story and bring the viewers with her at her last moments, and that was all exclusive footage shot from all of their cell phones, um, of what happened to her during her last moments and, and, you know, how disingenuous the story really is about what happened to her. Because after she was shot, the New York Times did a follow-up kind of true crime investigation of her death. And they showed, they kind of recounted this video footage and cell phone cam to basically say she was shot accidentally. Um, and I found that really abhorrent. Um, that they went out of their way to really excuse her murder, right? After you see them going to the fence to try to help those yeah. two injured civilians 
and they are shot. I mean, warning shots were fired at them then, and they all had their hands raised. They're all wearing medics uniforms, and they retreated um, dozens of yards back behind the fence before they were actually shot. And this is after they were rendered unconscious from that toxic gas, which we still don't know what it is. But it really shows you that they knew exactly who they were. They were targeting them the whole time, and then they finally decided, um, let's kill them. And, and this is what another medic talks about, Mohammed Mekded, who says for the first six weeks, it was normal, quote unquote normal, if you could call what was going on normal. He says, you know, shot with gas, targeted with gas. And he said, and then on May 14th, the medics started being killed systematically. Um, and, and, and you kind of see the PTSD kind of overcome him as, as he's retelling this story. But it wasn't just, of course, the New York Times that smeared her and tried to excuse and absolve what happened to Razan. It was the IDF, of course. Um, you know, it was absolutely vile that they had the audacity to put out a propaganda video calling her a human shield and, right. and, and maliciously editing this video that she gave with Turkish media where she says, I'm Razan al-Najjar, I'm a human shield on the front lines. And then they cut it. And if you see yeah. the whole video, you see the whole video, just like any combat medic would say, she says, I'm a human shield protecting the wounded and injured with my body. Like I am there to protect the injured and save their lives. And the fact that they would maliciously doctor that and pretend like she's saying she's a human shield for Hamas is beyond sick. It is beyond reprehensible. And that's what they did to smear her to smear her in, in her death and not and, and so we we felt like it was crucial. It was crucial to kind of amplify her story and to give a true tribute to who she was, let her family speak uh, you know on her behalf uh, uh, the true humanitarian hero she really was and and leave people with her legacy to be inspired by her humanitarian work. Um, your film does a really good job of debunking these fabrications by Israel and like you said they are really disgusting they were really beyond the pale um, but quite typical of Israel um, and, and uh, I think that yeah, your film is uh, like I said your film's titled Gaza Fights for Freedom and it does a really good job of centering the Palestinian struggle in the Gaza Strip and how it. Um, you did a really good job of rallying the facts and statistics too, but it's it's makes it you bring it down to a human level where you've centered the fact that the people in the Gaza Strip uh, for the last uh, well, we're getting on for nearly two years now since March of March thirtieth, twenty eighteen, um, have risen up in mass protests. Um, for the right of return to their homes in historic Palestine, uh, present-day Israel, uh, and against the siege of Gaza uh, and against Israel's injustices and racism. Um, and in response, they've just been shot down dead by Israeli snipers systematically. And my favourite part of the film is in, there's this central sequence where you put together <laughs> a sort of collage of... Um, Israeli and pro-Israeli propagandists, mostly on um, US television, uh, but also one I noticed at LBC, London radio station, where, they, where the Israeli ambassador was given his usual, uh, not, 
nonsense. Uh, we're not supposed to swear on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and uh, yeah, you've, you've put these sequences together really effectively. And I was watching it and my blood pressure was pressure was sort of rising. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, the, you know, this is... Uh, the, the usual crap but you've done a, you did it did a really good job of debunking it because instead of then saying you know you coming in as a narrator and say well actually this is what happens and this is this is why you very simply and effectively just showed this footage shot so they they're all smearing the demonstrators as you know like you said he, he uh human shields for terrorists or terrorists terrorist sympathizers you know hamas and and so on and so forth all this stuff um and then you contrast that just by no narration, just showing the footage shot by Palestinians who are actually on the ground at these demonstrations, as they started as and as they've been all along as peaceful, um, unarmed demonstrations, uh, non-violent resistance, right? Which is what um, uh, Western liberals always claim that they want Palestinians to do, you know, to to right. Right. Um, if only, if only they yeah. held peaceful marches like Gandhi. Yeah, yeah exactly, right. exactly. Um, so I I really loved that part, especially. I mean, it, it was obviously horrific as well, just because of the nature of what it showed. But I, I just found that um, a really effective central part of it. Mm. Thank you. I mean, I, I did that intentionally. I, I edited together those that montage because it's just when you put it together, it's really beyond the pale um, and beyond belief that this propaganda is actually believed, you know, and widely distributed. And it's deployed by these officials who look like me, who sound like me, and it's directed toward an American audience, you know, and, and the cartoons, these Hasbro cartoons that Israel puts out are also directed towards an American audience. And the propaganda is is so atrocious. I mean, the fact that they say they're committing self-genocide, you know, the yeah, fact that... that was grotesque. That they want telegenically dead Palestinians for their cause. I mean, the, mm. the more dead, the better, that they're literally throwing civilians in the line of fire. And I, and I like that you picked up on that, Asa, because um, I like that you picked up on how I didn't have to narrate anything. There was nothing to weave together other than that child at the march who says, we're here to liberate Palestine so we can all live in peace. And when you see that, you know, really young girl, I think she's like 10 or something like that, just really eloquently stating why she's participating at the march. And then you see these contingents of women leading the march. Um, and as Ahmed Abu Artema said, you know, back to the Gandhi thing, he's like, yeah, people say, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? He's like, there's been 200 of them. They've all been killed. Um, and, and what do you want yeah. us to do? And he, you know, he clearly articulates that it was a, a, a peaceful action and that it was all symbolic, kind of akin to like an Occupy Wall Street where, to, where they wanted to pitch tents in the open land and um, mount pressure from the international community to draw attention to their struggles, refugees, 70 years later. And um, it's just really beautifully poetic how he weaves together the intentions of the march and also when you see for yourself that although there are political parties represented and we know that there's a mosaic of political factions in Gaza, the march was led by unaffiliated uh, academics, poets, artists, and activists. And you see kind of it was like this festive celebration and again, like a lot, a lot of women and, and a lot of young children chanting and that one young girl who says, you know, when an elephant def or when an ant defeats an elephant and 
Uh, I love that part. Uh, it's just it's just people that you never see and voices that you never hear from. Uh, Abby, you invited me to the San Francisco screening of the film last month, and it was brilliant to watch. Um, but what struck me about the audience um, is that I overheard several people talking about how they were just now learning about Palestine and were eager to see footage that you that you had put into this film because it contradicted the mainstream narrative, even in progressive or leftist spaces. Um, what do you hope audiences get out of uh, watching this documentary? Right, and we took the documentary on a North American tour because we didn't just want to put it up on Vimeo, and we're putting up the Arabic uh, version actually in about a week, and we're actually making it more widely accessible uh, Mm. after the tour is over next week. Um, But when we took it on the North American tour, it was for a very specific intent. It was to link with Palestinian solidarity organizations, of course, Jewish Voices for Peace as well, and other activist groups, anti-war groups, to mobilize a movement, to resurrect an anti-war movement, to galvanize people against the U.S. empire, which is subsidizing these atrocities and kind of sponsoring what is happening um, in our names. And, and we wanted an audience to leave empowered and we wanted an audience to leave with tools of action. And, and that's why we, um, you know, not only sponsored these screenings and had this Q&A session afterward to really generate uh, that movement and, and the call to action, but also we wanted to frame the entire documentary in an incontrovertible um, construct of international law violations that really left the viewer with completely armed with knowledge that they are, um, that they feel empowered to now, they can argue with anyone, they can crush this debate. I mean, it, this is really a political education effort, as we know. I mean, we're massively ignorant in this country and we're conditioned from birth to just hate Palestinians and dehumanize brown people in general and also to just have American exceptionalism, which is a toxic sickness. So I think it's really important, first and foremost, to be armed with this knowledge and to be secure in the information where you're not swayed by the propaganda, where you can go into leftist circles and say, no, you're not progressive if you don't support Palestinians. No, you're not progressive if you're not advocating BDS. And and we need to be really um, we need to be really confident in that. And that's why we had this construct of international law, because even though the U.N. has its faults, you know, I disagree with a lot of the things that the U.N. does. But I know for the average American viewer um, that's something that will, they kind of hold, you know, they, they hold the UN as kind of this high court. And it's important to understand that all of these things that Israel is doing in the confines of international law is, is illegal and unjust. And everything the Palestinians are doing is completely legal, uh, necessary and justified. And that includes, I mean, as the UNGA National Assembly of 1978 articulates that they do have the right to resist in an armed struggle against colonial and foreign occupation. But that's not even what the Great March is. But I think it's important for people to know and understand that this is, um, you know, these international law violations uh, are, are completely egregious, grievous. And the only thing that is preventing Israel from being held accountable on the world stage is the U.S.'s veto power at the U.N. Security Council. And so it it has to come back to us mounting that movement here um, and, you know, forming some sort of resistance against this government. I just wanted to just reiterate again that I thought it was, um, I think your film was brilliant. I I think it's one of the most important films about Palestine um, since John Pilger's uh, Palestine is still the issue, which is you know one of my favourite films of all time, 
And it's still sadly relevant, Timeless. you know. Yes. Um, yeah, I thought it was a wonderful yeah. film. You did a really good job. And all our listeners should um, go and buy it uh, or rent it immediately. So thank you very much, Abby, for coming on the show. Wow, that that that's... I'm incredibly honored to hear that. I can't thank you enough for that compliment. Asa, and Nora, I respect your work so much. You've had, both had a profound impact on me. And, um, you know, it just, it's just—it's really thank important you. that we stand together and um, keep fighting. And um, people can check it out at GazaFightsForFreedom.com. We also have DVDs uh, up for sale now. So thank you so much for the opportunity. And, and I'm really honored uh, to be on. Thanks so much again. Oh, thank you so much, Abby. Abby Martin, you're a longtime journalist and TV host of The Empire Files and, of course, the, um, the producer and director of Gaza Fights for Freedom. Thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. We'll have you back on really soon. Thanks so much, Abby. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. 